Greetings and welcome. Thank you to each and every listener for tuning in for this brand new episode of On What Brings You In. My name is Bradley Wank, and today we are going to be discussing mental health and anxiety. Quite frankly, it can be pretty difficult to discuss mental health at all and not have a conversation or at least wonder what anxiety is. And often, even though millions of Americans and individuals around the world experience anxiety every single day, some of us are more aware of our anxiety, some of us kind of know how to handle ourselves when our anxiety is present, and what to do with ourselves to relieve our anxiety when we are in the moment. Now, don't get me wrong, there are different levels of anxiety, and as we have mentioned with so many other psychological and mental sensations, everyone experiences anxiety in their own way. This is why it can be so difficult to pinpoint exactly how, when, and for what reason a person is experiencing their own anxiety. And this kind of explains, too, why some individuals with severe anxiety require medications to control it, and there are others who might simply need to take a few moments of deep breathing and concentration to relieve their own symptoms. And I say all of this because I really want to reiterate to any listeners who may already be thinking, well, yeah, I know I suffer from pretty bad anxiety. It doesn't matter how you're experiencing it. As long as you are treating your anxiety in a healthy way, you are doing everything you can do for you, and that is what is important. For any listeners who may not know what anxiety is, or maybe you've been living with chronic anxiety for so long, you've just simply learned how to live with it, this episode is also for you because we're going to talk about ways to identify your anxiety, as well as discuss some strategies and techniques used by counselors in the field every single day to combat the big, bad anxiety monster. Sarah Tremblay is my guest today. She is a licensed mental health counselor. She has been licensed since 2008. She is licensed in both Washington State and Florida. She attended the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and now works as the owner and operator of Whole Self Counseling, LLC, in Palm Harbor, where she specializes in ED, or excuse me, in EMDR. And for anyone who's not familiar with that, it is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing as well as brain spotting. Sarah utilizes ego state or inner child work in much of her practice, and we are definitely going to get to some more of that today. So Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Bradley. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, this is going to be an exciting episode. Yeah. This is going to be titled, Not Today, Anxiety, Not Today. As always, before we get started... The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of those individuals involved and by no means represent absolute facts. Opinions expressed by the host and guests can change at any time. At time, this podcast may cover sensitive topics and we ask you refrain from listening if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, the producer, the host, nor the guest shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or any other reaction. I am not a licensed mental health counselor and this podcast should not be used to substitute for actual mental health support. So I always think it's important to start an episode with everyone being on the same page. And, you know, I am a student, so I usually throw in a textbook reference or two. But for those who are not aware of what anxiety is, I would say generally it can be defined as the intense, excessive, and persistent worry and fear about everyday situations, often interrupting one's daily activities. This could include accelerated heart rate, rapid breathing, and sweating, while others may describe their anxiety as a suffocating feeling with intense headaches, muscle spasms, stomach aches, and just an overall feeling of fatigue. Long-term implications of stress and anxiety, especially when they are untreated or undiagnosed, can lead to other mental health disorders, including general 
anxiety disorder, panic attacks, and depression. The last thing I want to note about anxiety before Sarah and I dive into this deeper is that anxiety is a naturally occurring sensation throughout our mind and our body. And psychologically, we understand that anxiety triggers our fight or flight response. And this is why the way we handle anxiety, and yes, sometimes this is beyond our own capabilities of handling, is so important. I remember in Psychology 101, we discussed a hypothetical situation where if we were hiking in the woods, uh, let's say we're in Yosemite National Park in California, and a mountain lion jumps in front of us, our body is going to begin experiencing some extreme anxiety because now we are in a life-threatening situation. We're going to start having rapid heartbeat, and the sweating is going to start, and there's going to be an adrenaline rush. And our mind is going to go to a place where we need to decide, do we try to fight off this mountain lion? You know, you might be thinking, can I, do I have anything on me that could be a weapon? Or can I make myself look bigger? Or you might run away from the mountain lion, which would be the flight response trigger by looking for a way to hide or a place to go to get away from the mountain lion. I know the example of a mountain lion is a bit extreme, but another way I like to generally look at anxiety is the feeling that we might have before we go on stage say before we would perform a skit or a song, or if you're about to go speak publicly. It's not quite the same life-threatening situation as a mountain lion, but you are likely going to feel a lot of the same symptoms, just on a different scale. You might be thinking in your head, do I fight this public speech, which inevitably would be to deliver it, or do I flight from this speech, which would be to try to find a way out of doing it altogether? And the reason I bring all of these examples up, or both of these examples between the mountain lion and the public speaking, is because they highlight the different levels of anxiety that one might face. Imagine going through your day feeling waves of extreme anxiety similar to the individual facing the mountain lion, but the mountain lion isn't there. Or imagine having the shaky and panicky feelings and thoughts that we have before we go on stage, but you feel them not because there's a stage, you feel them simply because you walked into your local grocery store. Once anxiety does take over, we can quickly become what I often refer to as the big, big, giant worry stress ball of a person. And this is just simply not how humans are supposed to live. It's not what we were designed to do. And this is why people like Sarah are in the world to help us maneuver and guide through our life journey and uh, help us face the anxiety when it comes head on. So, Sarah, first of all, thank you very much for what you do. Thank you. And I wanted to give you a second to go in and kind of explain what got you into this line of work and kind of tell us more about your approach. Yeah. So I actually got into, I decided to go to counseling graduate school because I was working in Mexico with street girls, victims of trafficking. And I was going out and letting these girls know I was working with the Mexican Department of Social Services and letting them know that there were some options for them. And um, that was... um, a very, it was just the kind of experience that I really did not, I didn't have tools for um, what I was seeing or how to understand that. And then I was also living in a home with these girls. And so the behaviors that they were exhibiting, which I now know are are behaviors that kids do when they've been through really intense trauma. But I didn't know what I was seeing or what it meant or how to deal with it. But I loved these girls. I cared about them very much. Um, And at that point, I really felt that I wanted to go to graduate school to learn more about it. 
And as part of that, um, I started doing my own counseling as well. We were encouraged to do that. And that was so helpful to me. I was able to um, learn about parts of myself that I had just kept really shoved down probably. Um, I think a lot of us do that just to live and to cope. And I felt like I was really able to have a lot more freedom and acceptance of myself just as I am. And that's such a powerful experience that then I really wanted to help other people to find that kind of freedom. So that's how I got into this work. And I focus mostly on trauma in my practice and a lot of childhood trauma, chronic trauma, um, some trauma where if you're an adult and you've gone through something, but for so many people, um, when you are going through something hard as an adult, part of what makes it especially hard is that it reminds you of situations in your childhood and you never learned the coping skills or how to think about it or feel about it or what to do about these hard situations. Yeah, I love that because I do think a lot of times in counseling, especially for people who don't understand what counseling is, that's kind of one of the first places we go is, well, there might have been something in childhood and it's not necessarily, and I know trauma can be different, but there are times where certain events may have shaped us. I mean, our childhood does, it's our development, but there, I like how you are phrasing that with, maybe we just didn't learn the right coping skills. Maybe there just was a way that we didn't face a situation with the, in, in no judgment because we're children. We don't know really what we're doing. We're kind of trying to figure out life through that development. So that's really cool. I love that approach. That's fantastic. So how do you bring that into your practice now? So usually when I start working with somebody, I want to hear what they remember from childhood, sort of what the sense of their family was. And I'll often ask people, um, if you had encountered a difficult experience, like let's say that you fell down and you got hurt, or a friend said something, or not a friend, someone said something really mean to you, what would you do? Where would you go? Or would you tell anybody? Um, and if so, what would their response be? And you can tell a lot from if people say, well, yeah, so if, if you have a healthy family, the hope would be that that child could run to a parent or a grandparent and say, like, this happened, and then they're received with empathy. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, that is confusing or that hurts. Um, and then so you get the empathy and the validation for the emotions. And then maybe some problem solving. Oh, okay. Do we need to put a bandage on it? Or um, do we need to work on some skills for how to stand up for yourself or some things you could say if someone says something like that to you. And then you can practice that with the kid and help them so that when they face those kinds of experiences, um, they're not overwhelmed. It's not a it's it's not a terrible experience for them. And so when we're when we're doing this kind of work, first of all, I sort of see what the emotional landscape is. Did they have somebody to teach them about emotions? Did they have somebody to teach them different skills for how to relate to people um, in difficult situations? And if they didn't, they're going to have a lot of experiences from their childhood where they had something hard happen. They didn't know how to deal with it. However, they dealt with it was the best they could do. But... Um, 
oftentimes, however we deal with it, whatever way we learn to deal with it in childhood, we then bring into adulthood with us. And for example, that could be if somebody says something mean to me, I maybe get really aggressive and I attack them. And um, and then, you know, throughout adulthood, that doesn't work very well. Um, and it could be, though, that I shut down and I just go very deep into myself and I internalize it and I think I am, you know, bad or gross or disgusting or ugly or whatever, you know, all these things, whatever we, whatever sense we make of it at the time. And so as we do the um, ego state or inner child work, we are often going back to key points where we maybe learned to believe something uh, negative about ourselves. And then we are going in there and we're imagining giving that child what they need. And whether it's affirmation, it usually is a combination of affirmation, validation, um, helping them to know they're not stuck in that anymore. Um, helping them will sometimes do a timeline and even show them pictures in your imagination about how you're not stuck there. And now you're an adult and you actually have some resources. So teaching the um, skills or the resources that people didn't get and then practicing those, um, that can be really helpful. And I also just want to say that we use a lot of our imagination and visualization with this because what studies have shown is that when you are imagining something, your body actually responds as if it were happening. And so what that means is we have a lot of power in the present um, to reimagine things. And even though we can't change what actually happened, we can change incredibly how we feel about it, the meaning we make of it, how we hold it in our body. And that takes things from being um, distressing and disturbing in the present to being like, oh, well, that's sad that that happened, but now I have resources and I'm not stuck there anymore. Right. It's such a cool way of looking at it too, because the past is in the past. We can't change what happened to us, but we can take what we learned, we can take those resources and take them forward in what we are going to do yes. and what that picture looks like. So that's just another incredible example of the power within counseling, which is what I do. You find out so much about yourself. You find out about those around you, how you interact with people and those underlining issues usually that people come in for. I think they work themselves out in a long run. And that's such a really, really cool approach. I really, really mm, like that. So, okay. well, let's get more into you're just, and I know anxiety is so general, but it is an important thing to talk about because I think what I'm seeing in my mind, and I always talk about this, I always think about my listeners. And so I know there's probably somebody out there who has anxiety who doesn't even realize they have it. So within your experience, I mean, do you, what would you say to those people who maybe don't know what anxiety is? Yeah. So anxiety can be experienced in a few different ways. 
Um, but I think like you were saying before, it's often a more generalized feeling of fear that with fear, we usually know what the, what we're afraid of. Like I could say, oh, I'm afraid of my neighbor's dog if it isn't leashed and it charges at me. You know, there's, you can see the threat, you can, um, feel that fear in your body, but with anxiety, um, it's often a much more pervasive sense. And there's three different types of anxiety that are very common. Um, you'll have panic, and that usually has to do with um, – well, actually, panic is experienced as like your heart beating really fast. It can be a shortness of breath or feeling like I can't get enough air in. It can be sort of tingling in your extremities. It can be sweating. It can, your heart can actually hurt. It's a terrible, terrible experience. And it usually happens um, when we've had a lot of anxiety that we're not really aware of. And then all of a sudden, either something can trigger it, or honestly, there's times when people have panic attacks and it's almost like the the anxiety has been building, 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 and building in the body, and it just overwhelms people. Um, and so panic is one of the types of anxiety, but another type is social anxiety. And with social anxiety, that's often around for different people, it's going to be a different different sort of fear, but it's around what are people going to think of me? Um, am I going to be able to be, to do okay in this, if in this situation, are people going to like me? And there's usually a lot of negative beliefs around, will I be accepted? Will I be liked? So with panic, there's a feeling of I'm going to die. Um, and with social anxiety, there's a feeling of I'm going to be rejected. Um, and then there's generalized anxiety disorder. And for that, you're going to have a combination of panic, social anxiety. You're just going to have your body sort of freaking out a lot and you don't even know why. So the interesting thing is that with this inner child work or working with these younger parts of ourselves, we usually can try and figure out oftentimes people can pinpoint with, we'll sort of float back sometimes with the sensations in the body or with the negative thoughts that somebody's having, like, they're going to hate me. I'm, you know, they're going to call me stupid. We can often float back and target what was the first time you remember feeling this way or what was the worst time. And often those times hold so much energy and our brains and our bodies actually get frozen because those are traumatic experiences when that happens. Our brains and bodies get frozen in that and then um, we're having that flight or fight response and but we don't know how to get out of it. And that can when we have a feeling like that in our brain, it actually can become a bit of a habit in our brain. So a lot of anxiety is actually a habit. Um, and so going back to when that happened and helping to identify that, of course, I was afraid. And also, lots of times if those things happened in childhood, we take things very, very personally when we're children. That's just developmentally. We are gauging everybody around us and we take it personally. So some of the work that we do then when we are targeting these memories is to realize like, oh, what I did was just 
normal. Like everybody does that. Oh, everybody makes mistakes. Or yeah, that was a scary situation when um, when the dog charged at me, but um, I didn't. It, it didn't actually kill me. And I am okay now. And now I know a few more skills about, you know, maybe what I could do if an animal charges me. So there is a lot of getting unstuck and then helping the body to get unstuck. So there's different exercises that I'll teach people as well, both when we're working with the younger parts of us so that these younger parts can experience this and so that when we're experiencing either panic or the... Um, just whatever symptoms of anxiety in the present. So one of those is um, just breathing because when we breathe in, that actually activates our um, sympathetic nervous system, which sort of wakes us up. But when we exhale, and so if you ha- if you breathe in, but then you have a longer exhale, that activates what we call the parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for calming us down after we've been through something sort of stressful. And so even if you're noticing anxiety in your body, um, breathing in and counting maybe to four and then breathing out. And I say breathe in through your nose. And if you can, breathe out like you're blowing out birthday candles. All of this um, activates the vagus nerve or the parasympathetic nervous system to start calming our body down. It's a way of saying, okay, I'm okay. Um, Another thing that we can do and that I'll have clients do is actually do a visual scan. And so starting from looking over your left shoulder and then just scanning in a circle around you. This is something that mammals do in the wild. It's a way that we just, we look, we see, is there danger around me right now? Um, Another thing that we can do is just move our bodies a little bit. Animals also in nature will shake after they've been through a stressful or adrenaline um, adrenaline packed event. And so we'll shake and we'll have we'll we'll shake our arms and legs and feet or move our bodies. That's a really good way to move the energy through our bodies and help to move um, anxiety and calm our bodies down. Um, there's another, there's a few other things. One of these is called um, Havening Touch. And um, if you're interested, there is a woman on YouTube. I think her name's Katie Truitt. And she does what's called CPR for the amygdala. Mm-hmm. So I'll often <laughs> uh, send clients there on YouTube. But what it is, is gently taking your hand and firmly running your hands down your arms with sort of a firm pressure. And then taking your hands and going from the middle of your forehead down towards your temples, around your eyes, up um, like your cheekbones in the center of your nose, and just doing that along your forehead, doing that a few times. And then even going behind your ear and down the sides of your neck and across your shoulders with your hands. All of these are things that trigger that vagus nerve, which many people might have heard about. That's the main nerve in the parasympathetic nervous system that triggers a relaxation or a calming response in the body. Um, And so after we've established, like with panic, that there isn't danger, then you can do these kinds of things to your body. Um, 
Another one is putting some cold water on your face. Sometimes people will keep a cold towel or a towel that's wet in the refrigerator or in the freezer and bring it out and press it on their face or fill a Ziploc with water and keep it in their refrigerator. Because when you put cold water on your face, mostly around your eyes and the top part of your face, it triggers in our bodies what's called a dive response. And it turns that parasympathetic nervous system on. We, Our bodies basically can't panic when that's happening. And it's very calming. I always tell people if you're having a panic attack right in the moment, that's the best thing you can do. Um, I also, uh, I know people who find that lying on their back and putting their feet up in the air helps calm that panic panic response. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can do to help our bodies when we're in that. Right. And I love that because you're bringing up so much of what people may not realize is how connected your brain is to the rest of your body. And I, I think a lot of times when we think about mental work, we kind of forget how connected our brain is to our body. And you said too, anxiety is a habit, which is a learned behavior, but that can affect us physically. So there's so much work that can be done there. And those are great tips. I mean, those are great ways to look at it. And that's important work to be bringing into the field. And so what would be the next, or let me rephrase that. So with people that do have severe anxiety, and let's just take that, we've talked about the different types of anxiety. We've talked about a lot of the symptoms of anxiety. Can you go more into severe anxiety, maybe what that would look like for, yes. for people? Yeah. So with severe anxiety, what's interesting too is that some people just seem to be wired um, to be a lot more anxious and that may be generational anxiety that literally is passed down both um, in our DNA um, and also learned anxiety from our parents and our grandparents. There is often though uh, an element of frozen trauma when somebody has that level of anxiety um, and where the body really has gotten stuck. So I always say if if somebody has a more anxious personality, they're probably going to be able to manage that with exercise is so good. Exercise really helps. Um, taking the time to ask yourself, what what am I really afraid of here? And trying to listen to the message that anxiety might have, because sometimes it might be something like, um, it might be something pretty pervasive, like, I don't like the way that people treat me in relationships. And so maybe there's some way that I'm inviting the type of person that treats me a certain way that causes me legitimate anxiety. I really like what you said about, you know, the body-brain connection because all of our emotions come from our bodies, first of all. They're sensations. They go right up to the middle of our brain, to the amygdala, and that's where we get emotions that go with them. But they're all meant to tell us things. They are all, they all have, each emotion has a message for us if we can listen to it. And so with anxiety, often there is something that's wrong 
something I need to pay attention to, something maybe that I'm worried about in the future that I might need to actually take more time and do more planning around or do more research around. Um, or there's something frozen from the past that I need to really go back and target and let my body know that now it's okay. I don't have to be hypervigilant anymore. So um, often how we do that is with communicating with those child parts of us that are stuck and showing them that they're grown up, that now they have a voice, they have um, a cell phone they can call for help, they, have, they can actually run away, they can stand up for themselves, they can call the police, all these different things. Right. Right. That's really cool. That's a good, um, I've, I've always been fascinated by the inner child work that you can do because there's so much that can be unlocked from it. I did, I shared in, um, actually my, uh, my session, the, the episode that we did with EJ, um, I shared, uh, how we did like an exercise once where we wrote a letter to a younger version of myself and just how powerful that really truly was when you take it seriously, when you take the moment, you know, go to a, a place where you can write and you can sit and do that deep work. And I think people get very thrown off by that. Like what is deep work or when our body is sending a message, how do we listen to that message? And so how would you describe, I know what that is, but how would you describe that to somebody who does not know what that is or how to listen to that? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think that often when we're doing that deep work, we have to really listen to our bodies. Oftentimes how we access stuff that we are not immediately conscious of. Um, so stuff that maybe we had to ignore or that we didn't know what to do with. So we just, I think everybody can probably relate to a feeling of like, I don't know what to do. And so you just sort of push it away. Well, all that stuff gets pushed really deep, but the body still holds the energy of that. And for all of us, when we experience things, our bodies are supposed to be involved in our lives. And so we're supposed to do things with our emotions. And then when we do them and we appropriately respond and listen to our emotions, they actually flow through us pretty fast. But if we don't know what to do with them and the people around us don't know what to do with them, we push them really deep inside, it can actually lead to a lot of health problems. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. And, and people don't realize that and it will resurface. I mean, and I think that's a point too, for people who do live with, I would say people who live with anxiety, not realizing that they're doing it just because it feels so natural to them. Or maybe even people who do know what anxiety is, they know that they have it, but they just get so used to pushing it. You said anxiety is a habit. And so you push it, you push it, but we're only so powerful as humans, as as individuals. So I think so often, and one of the things I've talked about on this podcast before um, is kind of geriatric psychology and how that's it's coming up because as the, the younger generations are embracing and accepting mental health, it's kind of pushing the older generations to say, hey, something that used to sound very foreign to me no longer is as scary. They might have their own children or grandchildren who are talking very openly about how it's helped them. So suddenly now these older generations are coming in and they're kind of doing some of this inner work and they're starting to realize how helpful that can be. So with my, I, I went there with that because I do think so often 
you would get to, or an individual might get to an age where, why am I feeling extra nervous about something that never used to make me feel nervous? Why am I starting to feel like I don't have as much control when I've been an adult for 50, 60 years and I've never had any issues before? So it's it's great that you're bringing all of this up. So, and I want you to if you have anything to say with that, because it is important. Yes. I love that you said that because there really is, there's, I see this often in people that there can be an accumulated sense of that you can deal with, with trauma or with hard stuff for a long time. And honestly, uh, especially for people, you know, 50 or 60 and older, those generations were not, feelings were not talked about. They were actually usually uh, pushed away. And um, so being able to have language around feelings, have that normalized, that actually emotions are helpful to us. We need them. They tell us about the world. They tell us about ourselves. They tell us about the relationships. They tell, they inform us on what to move towards and what to move away, when to, um, when to get energetic or interested in something and when to pull back and rest. They're really inter- or really important. Um, and for older people too, it's I think that there can be a lot of fear because there's a sense of, well, I have so much. And what's the point? Why would I ever go into this? I've done okay. But the truth is is that you will see symptoms emerge as people get older because they actually there is, as we age, there is a loss of control. And that's scary. And so in a lot of ways, as people get older, they start to reconnect to things from their childhood more, but they're often not aware that they're doing that. And so there's more of just a felt sense. There's more anxiety that does start coming up. And so just like children really need to be supported and taught about their emotions and validated and then taught the skills of what to do with them. Anyone who never got that needs that, whatever age you are, and we need other people with us. I always think that um, the hardest things are things that we go through alone. Those are things that actually the body stores as trauma, and we just don't know, we, we can't get over Almost anything, even really, really hard or really sad or really painful, if we have people with us in a sympathetic and supportive way, we are going to be okay. Right. It kind of gives you that guiding force just right next to you that's right yes. there, that's that's going through it in their own way. I mean, maybe they're not taking on all of the pain and the trauma. We don't need our supporters to do that, but just to be there, to yes. physically emotionally and mentally support. So, and it's so, I I really do, because I bring that up. There was a study that I read uh, one time and just kind of speaking with the older generations where they compared, I think they compared the cognitive functions of, it was an older person who was going into a nursing home as the same as a younger person who was going off to live in the dorm or live in dorms for their college experience. But same thing, they're going through so many new forms of pressure, new forms of anxiety is going to come up in both ways, you know, new social circles, new financial concerns, uh, 
oftentimes they might be going because, you know, for the younger person, they feel like they, they need to go to please other people. And a lot of times in the older generations, they may not have a choice. So there were so many things that were very similar, but we tend to glorify the younger and we don't look as, as nicely or as kindly on the older generation. So this is a very important conversation to have for anybody who's listening who it does not matter what age you are. I look at it as I'm very thankful that the younger generations are embracing mental health because as they age, they'll have more tools that other people did not have. Exactly. But it's not, I don't want to say it's too late. That doesn't sound great, but I just mean it's never too late to focus on your mental health and to figure out where that anxiety is coming from and how to listen to your body. Because as soon as you do, you're going to just have a brand new perspective on so many things. You'll be able to go into your challenges with a different head on your shoulders. And you might be able to say, I know how I'm feeling right now and I'm going to take that forward. Yes. And it's the work that you're doing. So (laughs) it's really, really important. Um, Can I say one more thing? I wanted to um, also just mention that uh, there is a lot with anxiety. Um, Once it's a habit in your body that we that actually food and nutrition uh, can help with. And so I talked about those different skills or the different uh, resources that we can try using, the body resources. But there's also a lot of research that shows that um, eating a lot of greens is very helpful with anxiety. There's actually a book called The Anti-Anxiety Food Solution by oh. a woman named Trudy Scott. And I believe she also has a website. And it's very good. Um, But also, another book is called The Mood Cure by Julia Ross. And both of those talk about how uh, in the present day, our diets are deficient in certain things that we need. For, For example, tryptophan is found in, you get it from grazing, animals who graze in the wild. Um, And when you start having factory farmed meat, you lose, it just doesn't have a high tryptophan. Tryptophan, the brain uses to make into 5-HTP, which is turned into serotonin, which is huge in both anxiety and depression. So eating... um, Meats that are from grazed animals is one of the ways that you can actually get your protein up. Eating enough protein really helps with anxiety, eating the right kind of protein. But also for a lot of people, getting on an SSRI can really help with anxiety as well. And I just, I never want to, you know, skip that because SSRIs are known to treat depression, but they often very much take the edge off of anxiety for somebody whose brain and body from a young age learned that it needed to to always be hypervigilant and amped up. And I like that you brought that up because it's definitely a question people would have when they think about anxiety. And there is a generalized fear, I think, in my experience with people who are worried that going to counseling means I'm going to be put on something that's going to change my behavior or my personality. And a lot of times when these drugs are utilized, I think it's exactly like what you said. It's not saying that this is a lifetime approach to 
to what is happening. I mean, if you go through the process the way that you're supposed to, when you are on these drugs, you're supposed to be getting counseling with them as well. If you're treating them the way that you're supposed to be treating them, they should just be a short-term solution for the most part, or just to kind of help get you over that edge. We had a, a the last episode or two episodes ago we did uh, on postpartum and how sometimes right right in that moment when your your hormones are all over the chemical imbalances and that's a natural response from having a child from childbirth so you might just need the drugs then yes. just to help you get to where you can be and i think ssris are the exact same way so i appreciate you bringing that up yes and also that there's no shame because there are some people who do a lot of counseling who look into the nutritional side of it and who still may need to be on an ssri long exactly, term right just and and often when i see that it's people who come from generational um either depression, trauma, anxiety, where you have a few generations of this. And it, they are – actually, this is really interesting. I read that when the baby is in utero, if the mom is stressed, the mom actually starts pulling adrenaline from the baby and the baby's um, – the – I can't remember what it's called right now. The adrenal gland. The adrenal gland actually grows bigger in the baby. And so then you think about, okay, here's somebody who has an adrenal gland that pumps out more adrenaline than somebody else. Like they're going to experience more anxiety. They're going to have that amped up feeling throughout their life. Right. That would be more of a constant for them. Right. Without right. ever having experienced anxiety of their own. Right. Wow. Yeah. So it's powerful to know. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I never knew that. I know. So. so another piece with anxiety that's really important to keep in mind is that oftentimes our response to anxiety is to try and avoid the things that we think whatever our brain is telling us is the cause of our anxiety. And so what you'll have then is a cycle of the the body will feel anxiety and the brain will say, oh, there's this scary thing. I need to avoid it. And then you avoid it, which actually builds up a sense of, oh, I can't go there. And it really creates this cycle then that starts to get a life of its of its own. It's like panicking about panic. Exactly. And that's a lot of people start to have panic about having panic attacks or they'll have the fear around social situations, so they'll avoid them. And actually, with anxiety, you you want to target what are you actually afraid of? So listen, is it telling you anything you need to do? But if it's from more of a generalized sense that maybe you inherited from your family or your parents or your DNA, um, or from something that is no longer occurring, then you actually want to start facing those things and seeing that you can survive. And so with panic attacks, part of it is I can have a panic attack and I can do the rubbing on my arms and shoulders and face, or I can tap on, uh, there's a tapping called EFT as well that you can look up online that taps these different acupressure points that 
calms your system down. I can do that if I'm having a panic attack and that's going to help, or I can breathe or put the cold water on my face. And so actually even letting yourself go into these situations that feel so scary, but going into them intentionally and showing yourself that, oh, I am okay. Or with social anxiety, figuring out what is it that I'm really afraid of. I'm afraid that somebody's going to tell me I'm stupid. Okay, well, if they do, and even setting yourself up and practicing in your mind. Somebody tells you you're stupid. Well, either then practicing telling yourself like, well, that person really has a chip on their shoulder, but that's not really about me, and just walking off. Or, you know, standing up for yourself and saying like, well, yeah, I mean, that was a different thing that I said, but here's why I said it. And I believe that, you know, so the the actually engaging somebody and not just taking in whatever kind of uh, negative energy it is. And so when we do that, when we face those fears, it really sets a new script in our minds. And we actually have to practice it a lot because the anxiety is very well worn into our neural pathways in our brain. So often with anxiety, we do a lot of practicing of let's face that. What is the worst that can happen? And, and really really going into that and, okay, well, what would you do if that happened? Let's actually imagine that. And you might have a lot of feelings around that. Okay, feelings aren't going to kill you. We can stay with those feelings. We can feel through them and get to the other side. And practicing what you brought up to that, that verbiage is really, the verbiage that you tell yourself is very important in figuring out the ways around what your anxiety is over, but in it, like I, you, instead of using the word stupid, you use different. Like uh, maybe what I said was different, but I'm going to stick up for myself. And I think it's also one thing to say, I'm going to say this out loud to another person, but I'm also going to say this internally to myself. I love that. That is so true. It's a very powerful thing. The things that we say to ourselves. Right. Right. So there is one kind of thing that I was in the research of this episode. And I don't know if you've had any experience with this, but what what about children who experience anxiety? Because we talk about child work for adults, but what about children who are faced with these same yes, symptoms? And yes, I really, I really like that question. So I don't work primarily with children. So mm -hmm. I will tell you what I know, but that also, I'm sure there's people who could answer that a lot more thoroughly than I could. With children, though, it's basically the same in that you want to look for, is there a physical cause to this? Are there things within um, either diet or lifestyle that are pushing the child towards more anxiety? One thing I will say is that with, um, you know, just the non-neurotypical or neurodivergent, um, the ADHD, the ASD, um, autism spectrum disorder, you have uh, a lot of kids are experiencing a lot of anxiety from, with both of those. And those are now being diagnosed much more than they were in the past. And there's actually a lot of research around different foods contributing to that. And so I would, I always tell parents, um, look into research around foods and food sensitivities. Those can cause a lot of anxiety in children. There's also different things that you can do, um, different supplements like magnesium helps calm the brain down. Uh, there's one called GABA, G-A-B-A, -A, not gabapentin, which is a drug, but GABA. Uh, it's a neurotransmitter. And um, 
that can you, you would want to talk to a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a naturopath someone who actually is would be able to guide you in that but that can be helpful some different supplements taking certain foods out of the diet um or adding different supplements in or both but also then really the same type of work that we would do with the inner child work, which is what are you afraid of or what happened if there's a situational trigger for things. And then um, trying to help the child to both validate that, of course, you're feeling afraid of that or you're feeling sad about that or confused or overwhelmed, all these feelings that we have. Um, and then problem solving with the child. So maybe may, if there's a situation that needs to be resolved, so often anxiety is around something like there's a kid that's really mean at me to me at school and a parent might need to advocate for their child. And I just want to encourage parents like you are the parent you always want to advocate for your child. Um and doing problem solving, helping them know it's not okay for you to be miserable. We need to get you out of situations if you're truly miserable. If there is something that we can't get you out of or we can't change, then what are the skills we need to build you up in to face it? Because with anxiety, we always overestimate the danger and we underestimate our own ability to cope with it. And so you both want to basically diminish the danger if there's real danger there or or just helping yourself to know, no, it, there, that really isn't something I still need to be afraid of. But then building up that sense of, I can face this. I know what to do in different situations. Or if I don't know what to do, I know who to ask or who I can find. And then the last thing would be teaching kids things to help their bodies calm down. And so those same things that we talked about, um, I actually really like the EFT, which is called emotional freedom technique. I mentioned that before. It's a tapping. You tap, first of all, above your eyebrows. Uh, you tap on the temples with both hands, just a sort of slow tap, tap, tap. You tap under the eyes. You tap under the nose, you know, about 10 taps each time. You tap under the lip on sort of the top of the chin. Then you tap under the shoulder blades, you tap under the armpit, and then the outer side of the hand, and then the sides of the knees. All of that helps the parasympathetic nervous system to kick into gear. And there's actually a book called Bear Hugs and Gorilla Thumps that teaches kids to do that when they're feeling these, these feelings, and it helps their parasympathetic nervous system kick into gear. And that's what's so important. It helps them calm down. And I think, too, with what you have been talking about, it also in that same work or in that line of development, I think it also teaches them how to focus on their emotions and understand what they are, what their emotions are telling them and what better time to learn it than when you're already developing it. Because there are many adults like us running around the world who don't know how to do that. And that's what we end up having to learn how to do. Anyway, so if you can kind of get your kids in that habit, I had a friend once who I think, I think he taught his, um, I want to say like four or five year old that when he was really, really angry or upset to take five, five seconds and just turn around and, you know, clench your fist and be angry and be upset and recognize that's what you're feeling and then let it go and it's gone. You were angry. 
you had it, you felt it, you worked through it, and now you're moving on to whatever the situation yes. is. I know it's different for a five-year-old, but yeah. it's still a really cool technique. And, yes. and that's such a beautiful part of teaching and, yes. and doing that in a healthy way. So there is a book that I wanted, I brought with me and I wanted to recommend because it's, I just find it to be a cornerstone in my work, both personally and professionally. It's called The Language of Emotions by Carla McLaren. And it goes through all the different emotions, um, helps you to understand what they're telling you, how to listen to that, or what they may be telling you. Because different ones, you know, there's they may be telling cross, you a lot of yeah. different things. Yes. Um, and then what, how to work with them. And there's a lot of exercises in there and resources around grounding, around boundaries, around um, letting go of things that are very, that involve the body and that are very helpful. So wonderful. I love that. Well, kind of on those same lines, because we are kind of getting here with our time. Is there anything you want to leave listeners with? Is there any, anything I'm going to leave the mic open for you? Yeah. I just want to encourage people that, um, it isn't okay for you to be miserable, for you to be living life in a way that feels painful or suffering, and that emotionally there is so much healing that is available for us. And to look into finding a counselor, I would definitely recommend to only go to a counselor counselor that you really feel like you have a good connection with. That's very important. And do the work um do that inner work of connecting with your body of noticing emotions and learning what emotions feel like and learning what they're telling you and then of doing the work to become a friend to all the different parts of yourself i like to think of us as having all these different ages of us inside, almost like a whole community of all the parts of us that have ever experienced anything. And the goal is for all of those to be friends with each other. And they might have different roles that they play, um, or they might um, have different times when they when we need them in different ways, but that they are all working together. They're not fighting against each other or trying to push each other down. Making it harder for yourself. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. Well, again, Sarah, thank you so much for being here today, for being so open and honest, and for all the wonderful insight and advice that you've not only given our listeners, but I know you do that on a daily basis with all of your clients. So well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, good, good, good. I also, of course, as always, want to thank the Collab Studios. I just said Tyler is a wizard back here. He always helps me with everything that we need, and he makes me sound way better than I am. They are in Clearwater, Florida. And also, if you are local to the Tampa Bay area, Sarah Tremblay is currently accepting new clients. Her practice is called Whole Self Counseling, LLC. That's located in Palm Harbor, Florida. And you can visit her website, www.sarahtremblay.com. That's S-A-R-A-H. Tremblay is T-R-E-M-B-L-E-Y for more information. If you have enjoyed this episode and you want to add to the conversation, or if you would like to be featured on a future episode, you can also visit my website, www.onwhatbringsyouinepisodes.com. 
If you or anyone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call or text 988 from your phone or visit www.988lifeline.org. Stay strong. Someone is out there to hear you. My name is Bradley Wank, and this has been an episode of On What Brings You In. 